0: Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Han Talks First. I'm your host, Han, and this is the podcast you're looking for, a Star Wars podcast where we talk about everything that is the latest and greatest in the world of Star Wars and that this galaxy has to offer. As I mentioned last week, I have a special guest today. Before I get into the interview segment of the show, I want to thank everybody for tuning in and joining us today. Happy Monday. I hope you're off to a great start of your week, and I hope you're staying safe out there. With that being said, I'll let all of you know that this interview was done on a phone call, so there was no contact between me and my guest. We were definitely being safe and social distancing ourselves. Uh, Very, very much so. So, thank you so much again for tuning in. Please make sure you go check out all the other episodes of Talks First. We drop them every week here, and make sure you use the force to like, subscribe, and if you don't mind, please leave a rating or a review on apple podcasts it helps out so much thank you and also the youtube is officially up we're dropping some videos there every week a bunch of segments to the shows some of the important topics that we've discussed here on the show Uh, without any further ado i'm going to play the interview that was done with me and brian kessinger I do apologize for any background noise that you may hear during this interview. They were doing construction in our area while this was taking place. I did my best to cancel it out, but there are still some parts where you can hear the construction in the background. We'll just say that we did this interview from the Droid Factory today. <laughs> Thank you and enjoy. I'm joined today by a very special guest, Brian Kessinger, a story artist, illustrator and author. He's had a 20 plus year career at Disney that has spanned both hand-drawn and CG animated films from Tarzan to Frozen 2 and many more, which I'm sure we're going to talk about later. His style and artistic journey has also led him to find an additional home with Marvel Comics and Lucasfilm. So I am very thrilled, very honored to have the chance to sit down with him here and chat on the show on Han Talks First today. Brian, welcome to the show. How are you doing?
1: Very good. Thanks so much for having me.
0: Oh, no, thank you. I, I'm really excited. I know the listeners will love to get the chance to hear your story and uh, learn about what you do. And I'm sure, I think I've mentioned some of your work before on the podcast. So for those of you listening that have heard me mention it, well, now you get the chance to hear him talk about his process and how he got into his art background and everything like that. So, Brian, with um, every time I have a guest on my show, I always start by asking them what their Star Wars story is. Now, this can be uh, a favorite memory you have or the first time you got into Star Wars or how you developed your love for Star Wars. For me, for example, the reason I'm so drawn to this franchise is just because of the the moral lessons, the life lessons, and just about being an individual in this big world and learning how you not only stand out as an individual, but are also a big part of a bigger world. So what's your Star Wars story? I'd love to hear.
1: Yeah, that's great, man. Um, mine, uh, would have to be, and I've got several, but I think the first one, um, would be seeing return of the Jedi in theaters. Um, I was actually born in 1978. So I was born a year late, uh, uh, for the first movie coming out. Uh, but I am born on May 4th. So the fact that I'm born on star Wars day, uh, I think kind of balances it out a
0: little bit. No way. That is so (laughs) cool. Yes. Uh, but,
1: um, I remember very vividly going uh, to see Return of the Jedi in the theater. That was 1983, I believe. And um, back then, the movie theaters, you know, basically you you open the door and it was a straight shot to the screen. You know, nowadays, movie theaters usually walk in the double doors and you walk around the stadium seating. Um, But uh, we
0: were actually late to the movie. Oh, no. and, (laughs) And so... I was like,
1: okay, and um, the theater doors opened up, we walked into the theater, and the first thing I saw on the screen was the door to the Rancor uh, opening up, uh, and the Rancor coming out, and for little old me, who was probably at that time doing quick math, five years old, I thought that the screen was opening up, and that that monster was actually going to come out into the theater.
0: Oh my gosh, that's so cool Uh, and and scary.
1: Yeah, yeah, it it was exactly that, scary and cool, and I was hooked ever since the rest of the movie. um, In fact, that's how I got to kind of know the movie, so I remember the next time going to see it, and there was all this stuff at the beginning, I was like, oh, this all makes sense now, Uh, because I was just (laughs) along for the ride, hadn't seen any of the other movies, I just kind of jumped into it to Return of the Jedi. So uh, for that, to this day, Return of the Jedi I think is is like my my favorite. Um, I should say my emotional favorite. I think my favorite overall would would probably be the first one, New Hope. But I have the most connection to Return of the Jedi.
0: That's awesome. My my favorite is also a New Hope. But uh, as far as emotional connection, a lot of people have said that their favorite's Return of the Jedi, which is which is great, but also kind of shocking since most of the hype is surrounded around The Empire Strikes Back. But it sounds yeah. like most people have that quote emotional attachment to that third movie.
1: I think what the third movie offers you is a chance to see all the characters together again, and there's so many cool aliens. And the speeder bike chase, I mean, obviously, Empire Strike Back, for the storytelling and the emotion, it's, it's way up there. Um, but yeah. for the fun and the adventure, uh, and again, for a five-year-old me seeing a bunch of Ewoks running around, uh, <laughs> I, I'm in.
0: So how did you, did you already, did you see episode four and five before watching Return of the Jedi, or did you just start with Return of the Jedi?
1: I just started with Return of the Jedi.
0: Oh, that's so cool. Uh,
1: yeah, so, because again, back then, there wasn't VHS, right? They weren't out, so you only got to see them uh, if they came out in theaters. So, um, I didn't actually see uh, A New Hope until a couple years later.
0: Oh, wow. Were you, like, really giddy and excited to learn that there was more Star Wars out there?
1: Yeah, definitely, because my parents were fans. Um, oh, okay. In fact, they were pretty, pretty into it. They were really big fans. I remember once playing with some toys with my mom. And I came up to her with a couple of spaceships. And I said, Hey, mom, let's play TIE fighters. And she said, She corrected me. She said, Well, those are TIE interceptors.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: those aren't TIE fighters.
0: That and, sounds like uh, a great mom.
1: <laughs> yeah, she's awesome. Uh, <laughs> and so they were very much into it. And, you know, told me how they went to go see Empire Strikes Back in the drive-in and how that was cool because uh, for all the space battle scenes, you're out in the open at night. It just looked like spaceships flying around in the air, um, which is pretty cool.
0: Oh, so, that's uh, an interesting way to view those movies instead of driving in the open yeah, space. That'd be really cool. Yeah,
1: that would be cool. Um, so um, I was very excited when I was finally able to see the other ones.
0: Yeah, I bet. That's really cool. Speaking of uh, drive-ins, this is a little off topic, but as as you yeah. all listening know, we're, we're still in this quarantine phase. And it's funny, I was reading the other day that drive-in theaters actually have spiked up in the amount of people going to them, which is really cool because you can still keep that social distance somewhat separated from each other. But at the same time, yeah. more people are experiencing that drive-in experience.
1: Yeah, which I'm all for. I love the drive-ins. I remember, again, being a kid of the 80s, uh, we went to go to the drive-in to see uh, Ghostbusters. Oh, cool. And then, so Ghostbusters is on one screen. I look over the other screen, and there's uh, Temple of Doom playing. And then I think on the third screen was Goonies. So uh, it was a good time to be a film geek.
0: Yeah, Uh, no kidding. uh,
1: in the eighties.
0: The only drive through experience I've had and that I remember is I saw the first Rugrats movie at the Diamond oh. Theater. Really? Yeah. It was really it was really cool, especially as I don't know how old I was, but I, I was young and yeah. just experiencing one of my favorite kids' shows on the big screen in that you know, you tune in on the radio to this to the channel. Yeah. You're just with your family, and you can talk during the movie. And I don't know; it was just a lot of fun and a really cool experience.
1: Yeah, it's the best. That's awesome.
0: So, everyone listening, if you get the chance, go to a drive-in movie. It's pretty awesome.
1: Yeah, they're great.
0: So, we are going to talk about Star Wars. So, guys, don't worry. I'm sure we got. <laughs> we're going to talk about, you know, Disney, Lucasfilm, Star Wars. We're going to talk about the rise of Skywalker. We're going to cover it all. But yeah. I want to start first with learning a bit more about you, such as your background. And uh-huh. you've been doing, you've been meddling in this art world for quite some time. So I'm curious as to how you got started and what your influences were and how you developed your career.
1: Yeah, thanks. So um, I've always very much been into animation. Uh, the first movie I saw in the theater was Fox and the Hound, which was a Disney animated movie. Um, and, uh, ever since seeing that, I, 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 knew that was what I wanted to do. Um, and so I I'll would, oh, uh, probably, probably around the same age. Um, cause I think too, that that was actually at a drive in as well. <laughs> um, uh, and it must have been a re-release Because uh, I don't think it actually came, well, maybe it was. It might have been 82 or 81. So I was younger. Um, But um, I was just like enthralled with it. And then, uh, you know, told my parents that's what I want to do when I grow up. And they kind of laughed at the charm of that. Um, Because animation, you know, and through most of the 80s and into the early, well, yeah, most of the 80s, it was kind of a, Uh, not known about industry. People knew cartoons were made, but it wasn't until, like, Little Mermaid came out and some of those bigger movies that it really became, like, a worthwhile job and something that people knew about. Yeah. So uh, all while growing up, I would draw a lot and learn uh, different styles um, just because I'd always be, like, copying things onto paper Uh, on the dining room table you know like I'd have Calvin and Hobbes book next to me and be drawing from that or um, I remember those great Jim Lee covers of the X-Men that he did it was like four covers that joined together for one massive uh, picture so I would draw from that a lot Um, and so I just kind of grew up doing fan art before it was really a thing right yeah Like now, before it even had a name of being fan art, right? (laughs) Um, And I think because um, I did that and would draw so much from other people's work, it got me to understand the different languages that people use when they draw, right?
0: Yeah, that's really cool.
1: Different, Different styles and that sort of thing, which ended up really helping me in an animation career because in the 2D days, when you'd have about 400 to 600 artists all working on the same movie, we all had to draw exactly the same so that the movie never changed styles, right? Now that's not really an issue with CG films because they all are modeled and, and rendered in a way that, that kind of gives some automatic cohesion. Yeah. But um, back then, you know, when you would start on a movie, you'd be given a style guide that the art director created and you would actually practice drawing. Uh, in
0: the style of the movie. I heard you say once in an, in an interview <clears throat> that um, a lot of how you started was also through tracing some of your favorite works. Yes. Oh, yeah. And that helped inspire original ideas. Is that right?
1: Yeah, definitely. Well, it's funny because, you know, and it's somewhat taboo to, to admit to tracing, but as a kid, <laughs> I think, and as someone who's learning, I think it's invaluable because um, you get to spend a lot of time with the drawing, right? It actually brings you closer to the artist because you're faced with seeing all the creative solutions they did. Like, oh, how did they draw this balloon being tied off at the bottom? Oh, well, they did it this way. You start to build up your own library uh, in your head of how to draw things. And, um, so, yeah, I would do that a lot where um I, in fact, had a Return of the Jedi coloring book uh, that I wish I still had because it was super cool um, that I would actually trace out of rather than color.
0: That's a very interesting way to put it. It's almost like by tracing other works, getting the inspiration, it, it kind of teaches you the secrets of how it's done, and it's good practice.
1: Yeah, purely practice. I mean there's people out there that trace and then try to sell it as their own (laughs) and and obviously that's not what i'm advocating but um for for just being alone and seeing how uh things are done it's a it's a great exercise
0: yeah now i don't consider myself an artist but i use my girlfriend's ipad she has the procreate app and oh yeah what i've been doing is taking pictures of things. Uh, most recently, action figures, and uh-huh. then tracing the outline and trying to fill in the detail <clears throat> without um, using the photo. And that's cool. Yeah, I most recently did a Skerxis from the uh, Dark Crystal
1: uh, oh, yeah.
0: TV show, and awesome. it it's really cool because it. Does, I like how you put it. It helps you bring, you know, a little bit more closeness to the artist and realize what they're doing because i wasn't copying a a a piece of art well uh drawn art it was more of a clay model which is still you you notice more how how delicate it was that they craft every line and color and it's it's just an interesting way to view it
1: yeah so true
0: so would you say that disney is uh one of your big influences
1: oh big time uh more so than like you know i know that there were a lot of kids my age that were maybe more into comics and comic art um and uh other kids were maybe more into music that sort of thing but uh or uh even um anime right they're like all different different camps but for me i i was really into you know disney animation classic and then um the stuff that started coming out in the eighties and nineties.
0: Yeah. So how did you, how'd you take that inspiration and develop your own career out of it as far as like either collaborations or original works?
1: Yeah. So uh, I was fortunate enough to have a teacher in high school uh, who really, you know, knew animation, knew the animation industry and told us as, as students, um, that if you really want to make it in the industry, you you know, you can't just be drawing cartoons. You have to be drawing from life. You have to be real artists first and then adapt into more animated styles. So um, I began in high school with a pretty intense curriculum of figure drawing classes and um, painting, uh, sketching from life, all that sort of thing so that I could start to build up a portfolio that could be, um, reviewed and, uh, submitted to studios, uh, because with animation hiring, it's usually portfolio driven, right? Yeah. You, you, you know, um, it's not so much about the, um, the interview process, although that's a component, the The thing that's going to get you the interview or not is your portfolio. Yeah. So, um, you know, that really helped, um, that 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 teacher really helped me craft what I needed so that I could um, actually get a job at Disney.
0: Very cool. And when did you start um, working for Disney? I started
1: in 1996. Um, I was actually, I think I still have this title: the youngest person hired uh, at Disney Animation. Oh, that's so uh, cool. I was technically 17 when they hired me, um, even though they didn't know that. Um, so <laughs> once, <laughs> cause what happened was I was a senior in high school and it was time to submit my, um, portfolios to art schools, yeah. like Cal office and art center and that sort of thing. But I decided to send one to Disney as well, just to kind of get their feedback. Um, so I knew what to work on, what to focus on in school. And Disney was the first people to get back to me. No way. And, yeah, and they said, we'd like to hire you. And I was shocked. Um, and there was a long pause on my end. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: the first words that I could even form, the thought I had was, uh, I need to finish Spanish class. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was an even longer pause on their end. And they asked how old I was. I said, I'm 17. Uh, They said, when do you turn 18? I said, in May. And they said, uh, okay, well, you'll start in August. And that was on the movie Tarzan.
0: Wow. Yeah. Did you end the call with, gracias?
1: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, it was kind of nice because my Spanish teacher was, you know, I I was fortunate to have a lot of supportive teachers uh, in, in all courses, but Spanish um, she really did not like what I was doing and didn't think I'd be able to make a career out of it. Really? So, um, that, not that I rubbed it in her face or anything, but it was kind of <laughs> nice going into class the next day, knowing that in three months I'll have kind of my dream job. So
0: that's amazing. Make, especially, made that a little easier. Yeah. That's really cool. Especially being so young and going straight into something you love. I, yeah. I'm curious though. Uh, so I'm a musician and among many of the challenges I face as an artist is um, trying to separate the hobby aspect of it and the the work or the uh, the commission stuff out of it just trying to separate those two and along with that challenge is you know trying to I guess creatively discipline yourself because you want to work you want to practice every day you want to if for you, you want to draw every day and do what you love. And sometimes you're hired for a project that um, you can't be as creatively free to do what you want. Uh-huh. And I'm curious, uh-huh. how do you separate, you know, both of those things and knowing when to – how to discipline yourself with that?
1: That's a great question um, and, and an important question. I think it's something a lot of students – need to realize as they're learning and as they want to try to join these entertainment fields um, you know entertainment in all forms, even in music for the most part is about collaboration right definitely and and so you know uh, it, it, it's not so much about being a soloist as it is about being a part of the orchestra And the uh, music you make uh, as an orchestra, will always be grander than anything you can do as a soloist. Right. And so, uh, I feel like animation is the orchestra. I feel like movie making is an orchestra and as such, no one's going to join the orchestra immediately and be the conductor. Right. Right. And so I see a lot of, uh, students these days, um, with, you know, dreams of being a showrunner right off the bat. Um, you know, coming in as a as a visual development artist and just being a character designer, um, and and those are great goals and all things that can be achieved, but uh, not without spending some time in the field and gaining that collaborative experience. So for me, when I came in and started on Tarzan, even though I was working on um, this great big you know Disney animated blockbuster. I was just a cleanup layout artist, which basically meant, um, I drew all the leaves in the background, right? Okay. Uh, It wasn't, um, it wasn't a glamorous position. It wasn't, I hadn't even made it into the cinematography aspect of layout. Um, it was purely coming in, um, and learning that skill and helping the team. And, um, you know, uh, it was taking that, being humble and accepting that role and learning from my coworkers that gave me all this extra skill and extra opportunity. Um, of course, there's always going to be the outlying stories of, you know, students who get their pilot picked up right out of school and that sort of thing, which is great. Um, but uh, like I say, it, it's a longer road. And to answer your question, um, I think the best way to combat it is to always have projects you want to work on that are just for you so that at the end of the day, you can come home and be the director of your own story, be the character designer, be who you want to be, but just know that it takes time to achieve those goals when you're actually in the industry.
0: Very true. And for any of you creators out there listening, um, I think another way to get into that and be more creative is to, to when you're working on something, whether it's, whether it's drawing, whether it's music or what have you, I think if you just work on something, if you have an idea in mind, go for it and then finish it. Even if it sucks. yeah Sometimes you got to get those bad ideas out of the way for good ones to come. And yeah. the most important thing for me as a musician is if I'm writing a song or a small piece of music, If I don't finish that, then I really didn't accomplish anything. Right.
1: That's great. We have a saying in animation uh, be uh, as wrong as you can, as fast as you can.
0: Right. I love that.
1: So don't worry about failing. Just fail quick, and then you can move on and uh, learn from it, you know? So we have that kind of mentality with a lot of the work that we do.
0: Hearing you talk about being part of the group and collaborating and it'll help grow your own personal advancements in the the field made me think of my example I gave about um, what star Wars means to me. So you're the Luke Skywalker in that situation where you're the the Jedi training yourself. But once you become part of the group, you can accomplish so much more.
1: (laughs) Right, right. No, it's so true. I mean, that's what makes Luke such a great character, right? Is that um, he really just wanted to be a part of the fight, right? He wanted to join the Academy. He had no uh, desire to be the leader of the galaxy, right? He was just a farm boy who knew there was injustice going on in the world and he wanted to do his part. And I think that's so great is you automatically root for that character and then he's given the added reward of uh gaining friends like-minded friends but then also you know being such a big important role um so yeah it it's it's a great allegory for that
0: very true so in addition to collaborating and working on individual projects i i think one thing that i've noticed of your works uh most importantly is um your aesthetic and your style and every artist has their own take on, on something. And, uh, again, that's another challenge is creating, uh, your own, your own uh, sound or your own, your own look. And when I think of your style, I automatically think of, which I think is your most popular of your characters or stories. And that's Otto and Victoria. I would love to know, Anything you could tell me about this, how it came to be, what inspired it, and just how, how did you come up with this idea?
1: Thanks, yeah. Uh, those characters are very special to me uh, for that reason, that they're, they're my own. And they came to me kind of late in the game because I had been working at Disney for over 20 years at that point and really spent my career telling other people's stories. And it wasn't until a um, T-shirt competition came up that was asking for steampunk t shirt designs. And I thought, oh, I like steampunk. Uh, let me see if I can draw something. And I ended up drawing um, uh, a Victorian girl walking a pet octopus, just because that seemed like, <laughs> oh, that's what high society steampunk women would do. Uh, and uh, it ended up winning and becoming a pretty viral image online shared around a few times, and ultimately shared back to me, uh, not knowing that I was the artist. So uh, that was kind of cool. Wow, so and, that's
0: how that got started.
1: Yeah, yeah. And then I noticed that in my sketchbook, I kept having more and more kind of ideas of what to do with those characters. So, um, you know, they really kind of stuck with me. It's funny to hear you talk about my style because I don't see it. I, I, um, I I've, again, because I've worked so long on so many shows, I feel like I just draw what I draw. And um, Otto and Victoria are definitely, you know, inspired by that Disney kind of aesthetic as far as, you know, animation-wise and everything. But what you'll notice if you look at it again, my other big influence, especially when it comes to steampunk, is Mike Mignola, the creator of Hellboy and uh his artwork is always so striking because it has so much um uh what would you call it uh so much graphic appeal to it these big black shapes that just kind of like describe the shadows uh really kind of cool creepy stuff yeah. so um i i thought oh that that'd be kind of cool to give uh this piece that kind of of look you know mix mix a little bit of beauty Right? An appeal that you would get in Disney animated films with a little bit of the darkness that you would find in Hellboy, which again felt a little steampunk, right? Yeah. Which is to get the the beauty and grandeur of uh, the um, Victorian era with
0: the punk side of things, right? So. um, Can you elaborate a little bit more for our listeners on what exactly steampunk is?
1: Yeah, sure. It's like kind of a subgenre of science fiction. and it, uh, if you hear clicking, that clicking noise are my markers. I'm actually working on something as we speak. Oh, no <laughs> worries. Very cool. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Steampunk is really cool. It's an alternate history. So it's science fiction that takes place in an alternate timeline of our world that supposes that electricity was never discovered and that everything progressed and evolved with steam power. So... Um, a lot of the times, it's used in kind of um, uh, post-apocalyptic stories or really kind of um, dire type stuff, dramatic type stuff. But it hadn't really been used a lot in fun uh, ways. So I think that's why my work kind of stood out from it, was I saw an emptiness there, and and I think part that's part of the reason why maybe steampunk hasn't been as globally accepted or, or, or clung to as other genres because it can be a little scary or a little dingy. Uh, so I thought, well, why don't I try my hand at it uh, with my take, which is a little more uh, for general audiences and a little more humor-based, right? Yeah. The whole idea of having an octopus for a pet is pretty humorous. So um, I think it was a little bit of being at the right place at the right time.
0: And one thing I, I – just to talk about your style again and what – when I see a piece of work and I automatically know it's from you, an example of that is just how much story that you can tell in one frame of work. That's what I've noticed a lot from your stuff is that you um, you always have uh, – even if – most of the time when you see um, a character drawing or uh, some kind of fan art like when we talked about earlier, you just see um, – someone who just drew a character and right, it's right. often very good, but sometimes I notice with yours is um, it's uh, for Otto and Victoria, for example, they're, yeah. they're always in a scenario or in a scene and it's like, and all the props and the accessories that you add to the characters really tell a story that is just in one frame. And I think that's what <clears throat> separates you from other, similar artists that i've seen how do you how do you come up with such big storytelling with such limited framework
1: well that's that's uh very nice of you to say and that means a lot because that's something i do try to strive for um and it comes from basically being a story artist being a illustrator um you know this idea of a picture is worth a thousand words um you know, that's something that should be embraced. And uh, there's an exercise we did um, in storyboard training at Disney, which was, you know, basically study New Yorker cartoons. Uh, New Yorker cartoons are always one panel of comics that have a lot of story, and every detail reinforces that story. And that, another good example of that is the Far Side cartoon. Uh, the Far Side was a newspaper comic. Uh, done in the '80s and '90s, and they were always one-panel comics, but they told so much story. Um, so I think part of that is, you know, embracing the storytelling side of art. That again, like you said, it's not just about having a technically proficient drawing. Um, there's no shortage of that on the internet, right? Right. There's a lot of amazing artists. There's so many artists that are better than me. There's artists that I look at and I'm like, man, why can't I be like that? (laughs) Um, And I'm sure for you with musicians, it's the same way, right? Oh, yeah. There's always gonna be someone better. Um, It's just how do you make yourself better? And so for me, I always look at how can I infuse my work with story? Um, And so that just comes from practice. That comes from uh, practice and also. A little bit of diligence of just knowing that everything you put in an image should be there for a reason, and if it's not helping tell the story, uh, then it probably doesn't need to be there.
0: So, um, how do you how do you know when you've gone too far? For example, if you're um, doing just one one piece of uh, art for Otto and Victoria versus doing a storyboard for some movie. How do you know when you're storyboarding for the movie that you're putting too much detail or too much story into one frame when you can tell it through multiple? Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. Yeah. The great thing about storyboarding is you always have to pitch it and your audience that you're pitching to, which is usually the director and the other story artists, um, they never lie. They never hold anything back and you'll feel it in the room when a sequence is overstaying its welcome, when it just feels too long. Uh, it's a little bit like a performance, um, how an actor can tell if they're engaging their audience or not. Um, with a drawing, it's a little harder because it is just you. Um, and again, that kind of comes with, with time and knowing, uh, but I always try to, um, stand by the saying of like, keep it simple. Right. Yes. At the end of the day, there's already a big idea going on, which is a woman has a pet octopus, uh, a, a, or an octopus as a pet. So that already is a big concept to ask my audience to accept. So I'm not going to try to go overboard and over design other things because then, um, uh, it's just too much to take in um so like if if i knew if i was going to do a drawing like i've done in the past where uh Otto uh is a pet octopus and he has a little mistake on the rug uh like all pets do they all sometimes go to the bathroom in the house oh, yes. but because because it's an octopus he's gonna ink on the carpet right and so that's the joke that's the one idea i want to get across so when i'm drawing it I don't need to go overboard designing the carpet. I don't need to go overboard designing the chair that the octopus is hiding behind. Mm-hmm. I certainly could, but it really comes down to prioritizing what's the idea and what's the clearest way to get it across.
0: Very well said. In, um, in transition, moving into Star Wars, I want to talk First about three. the differences between digital versus traditional. And you've had experience with both. And uh-huh. this relates to Star Wars, obviously, because after the original trilogy, which was yes. all very practical and handmade and um, uh, very very tastefully delicate works of art in their their own way, yes. and the next generation of the prequel trilogy turned into this, this digital phase, and it was one of the first pioneers to do a lot of this new technology and stuff like that and it's yes. it can be related to your field as well because i've seen you've done both cg work and also you know traditional hand-drawn and i'm curious you know what's what's your preference what effects do you go for for one that you can't get in the other and mm-hmm. how, how do you work with both um i think
1: you know before there was computers we were always trying to strive to capture the essence of life as best we could. Right. And there were all sorts of tricks, especially being in the layout department, which did just do backgrounds and camera work. We were always trying to emulate dimension and that sort of thing. that's why we had the multi-plane camera. It's why we would, you know, put such a reliance on perspective and solid drawing. Um, but at the end of the day, we were filmmakers, right? We were we we're animated filmmakers, and not to sound too pretentious about it, because I know it still is just singing frogs, but um, we love cinema just as much as anyone else. So we were always chasing, and that's why those movies look as rich as they do. When CG came around, um, it allowed us to be the full cinematographers that we wanted to be, uh, from moving cameras Uh, to lighting, to uh, much more detailed characters. None of the artistry was lost. It was just a matter of how can we get the artistry that came so fluently to us in hand-drawn to cross over into digital. And oftentimes, the digital side of things couldn't keep up um, just for their own limitations. Uh, But that wasn't anything inherently wrong in pursuing CG animation. Uh, it was just uh, a matter of reality. I mean, the the baby in Tin Toy, uh, the first Pixar short versus uh, the baby entangled Tangled are night and day, you know, right. but that doesn't mean
0: anyone working on Tin Toy was any less artistic. So um, I see a lot of times
1: online, it's a us versus them or, uh, hand-drawn is better than CG or CGs. is not as artistic. I, that's not at all the case. Um, it's just a matter of, and I think we're at a point now where CG can be just as beautiful, you know? Uh, yes. But for me personally, um, I will always have a special attachment to, to the hand-drawn animation um, because it's what I love and it's what inspired me to get into this industry. Um, and I will always prefer to take a blue pencil and a sketchbook and draw that way than to go into Photoshop. Um, but Photoshop allows me to create auto and Victoria in a way I could never do on paper. Um, so, uh, there's, there's strengths to all of it and you really have to be open to it. Um, how
0: did you adapt and- to the the digital era do you have any examples of things you've worked on maybe
1: yeah well i was very fortunate because tarzan was my first movie but that was also the first movie well one of the first where they were really starting to embrace uh cg animation cg camera work with those big sweeping camera moves through the jungle that's that's
0: what came to mind exactly (laughs) yeah
1: so i was on that that team that helped because uh, some of the other artists didn't want to be bothered with it because they thought it was a fad and, and wouldn't wouldn't learn it. Um, so the fact that I was young and open to kind of new ideas, um, not that the older people weren't somewhere uh, but uh, I think helped me so that by the time Chicken Little came around, which was our first full CG animated feature, I was
0: able to like roll right into it. So how? With Tarzan, for example, how did you um, whose proposition was it to you know push that digital uh, movement with like the ca- the digital camera and like the sweeping effects when he's swinging through the jungle? Is that like a director decision or is that an artist? Yeah, that
1: was a director decision, you know, and and the decision to kind of move the art form forward, and then they kind of threw it to the team uh, to make it happen, you know, which is one of the really cool things is everyone working together, um, to, um, it was like our version of the moon landing, right? Uh, right. someone puts put forth a mandate that they want to see these really rich, uh, backgrounds. Um, and, and we said to do it. What was interesting was, you know, we were doing it on Tarzan. And I remember while we were working on Tarzan, uh, they brought in an early screening of Princess Mononoke, the Miyazaki movie. And it was great because we watched it and they had a few shots in there where they were doing the same thing we were. And it was kind of cool to see like, oh, okay, the industry is is, is embracing this and is there, there's change on the horizon. So um, that motiv- motivated us to keep working and, and keep making it the best version it could be.
0: Yeah, and to go full <laughs> force.
1: Right. And, you know, I guess the difference is, you know, that we were trying to do those camera moves while maintaining a hand painted background look. So it wasn't like the ballroom in Beauty and the Beast where it was beautiful, but very clearly computer graphics, right? Yeah. Uh, This was like, how can we work on that integration?
0: Yeah, very true. (laughs) Really cool. I would love now for us to move on to Star Wars. I'm sure all of you listening are very, you know, <laughs> excited for us yeah. to talk about it. Um, one thing I want to hear from you, you know, I already asked your Star Wars story. Um, yeah. what is it about Star Wars that you think makes it iconic?
1: Uh, it's good versus evil.
0: Oh, yes. It's yeah. kind of
1: the purest form of story out there. And, um, the good side wins. So, um, it's a great message, you know. Be kind to each other, choose the right thing, and uh, things will work out. And so okay. for me, at a base level, that's that's what really draws me to it.
0: And I think that's what The Rise of Skywalker really says at the last installment of this, this saga is, you know, in, in the end, it was... About the ultimate good being the Skywalkers versus the ultimate evil being this Palpatine's, yeah. and it just in a in a very big way, you know these two individuals, so to speak, representing yeah. the the major good versus the major evil, and right. so that is what you can look at <clears throat> the Skywalker saga, for example, and, and say of it, and that, that is very yeah. true. I, I ask. A, Anyone who you know comes on the show and talks here, um, always ask them what they think makes it iconic, and you know I always get a different answer, and I think that's another one of the main reasons why yes. this is so popular and it hits home with so many different people. Yes. What did you think of the rise of Skywalker, and how many times did you see it in theaters? <laughs>
1: uh, I think I saw it like five times in theater, uh, which is probably. The least amount but that's not for any assessment of the movie uh it just started to uh come out when i was a little busier saw it five times uh i loved it um i really did um i also really loved last jedi um i wish that last jedi and um rise of skywalker well i should say this I wish the sequel trilogy, which I love for its characters, was um, a little more connected. I, I wish that that it was, because I see so many strong points in it, and but I also see a couple areas where it wasn't figured out from the start. And so, to me, Rise of Skywalker almost feels like an alternate sequel to Force Awakens.
0: Yes, that's uh,
1: true. Right? Like for me the battle with Kylo Ren and Ray and Snoke's throne room was more satisfying than the one in the Emperor's throne room. Uh, just with some of the way they, they shot it and and that sort of thing and, and the iconic kind of backgrounds. Uh, like that's a much more striking sequence. But if you had somehow be able to merge the two you'd have a pretty amazing second installment Yo, yes. uh, it, it's almost like I would have loved for the concept of the dyad between Ray and Kylo to be discovered in the second installment let that be your Empire Strikes Back moment at the end of the movie that they learn that they're actually connected and yeah. then let's see how that pans out in in the third movie.
0: Uh, so, in addition to that, one thing I said uh, after it came out was that if we'd have found out at the end of The Last Jedi that Palpatine was still around somehow and yes. then it just cut off, that would be a crazy ending. And yes. it gives you time to, like, I guess, prepare yourself and also creatively for the creators to uh, imagine a way for it to come about, too.
1: Right. Like, how cool. Because I actually thought when I saw Last Jedi that it was going to cut on that great shot of Luke standing off against the, um, uh, the empire there. Or oh, the there. on Octu? Uh, yeah. Uh, no, sorry, on, um, on Crate. when oh. When he shows up and he's standing off and he turns his lightsaber on. That would have been a great circle wipe to the credits shot that would have left everyone like, oh my God, what's happening next? <laughs> but, can you imagine he goes out there and not to get too much into fan fiction, but if he goes out there and he's about to face off against these guys, Kylo Ren's about to unleash all the cameras on him, and everyone stops because they get a transmission from Palpatine.
0: Oh my gosh. That's,
1: that's where you cut the movie and everyone for two years, audiences are like, how did that happen? What's going to happen? So yeah, I think the fact that Palpatine was kind of tacked on, in a way, to this uh, trilogy of movies uh, is a little little too bad, you know?
0: Dude, Uh, your fan ending for The Last Jedi, it's not even real, and it gave me goosebumps and made (laughs) me so excited for it.
1: (laughs) So, you know, um, but I also know just being behind the scenes on other big movies and big franchises that it's, you know, you're, you're working with a lot of people and uh, you're serving a lot of different needs. So it's hard. But, you know, clearly the way the Marvel films were structured out um, led to a very satisfying uh, uh, last movie. Um, very true. And I was very satisfied with Rise of Skywalker. But I think the, the when I turned my story brain on uh, and, and such, I'm like, ooh, it, Could have been so much more. Uh, Because, again, since we're getting into it, I, you know, like the idea of Ray not being connected to anyone. You know, I was hoping that what Kylo said in Last Jedi was true. Yeah. Because that's a nice message. uh, And that seems on brand um, to, you know, it's not about who came before you. Uh, they, They changed the theme in a good way. You know, to not fear who you are and that sort of thing. So they made it work. Um, But that's just my take on it.
0: No, very true. Uh, Speaking of Ray and how you talked about, uh, you know, the connectivity between these sequel movies. One thing uh, that really bothered me and um, not just so I can diss on the movie, guys, but because uh, Ray is my favorite character of the sequel trilogy. Uh-huh. and once I saw her in The Force Awakens, I was immediately attached, and Force Awakens yeah. was unbelievable at the time, and yeah. um, one thing I noticed as the this trilogy continued is that we lost more and more of Rey. Um, the yeah. Last Jedi was, I, I say, kind of Luke's story, and, uh-huh. and then she was almost kind of like a background character trying to help get this new new person as the main character versus luke and then my girlfriend pointed out to me that in um the rise of skywalker it was kind of even less of ray's story in the fact that it focused more on kylo ren slash ben solo right so that that was that was probably my biggest concern is just that you know we started off with a really strong character in ray and you know, mystery box stuff aside, uh, lineage aside, um, I think uh, the focus should have stayed on her a little bit more because I think yeah. she's a really, really strong character, and she could have had a very, very interesting story to tell. And that was the biggest connectivity thing for me with those movies.
1: Yeah. Who's your yeah.
0: Who's your favorite in the sequel trilogy? Uh, favorite uh, character?
1: Kylo Ren, and then second would be Ray. Because I'm with you. As soon as I saw in Force Awakens, you know, Ray, uh, you know, eating her lunch with an old X-wing helmet on uh, in the in an abandoned AT-AT, I was like, "Oh, I love this character." You know, um, but then Kylo, I thought, was great because, um, unlike Darth Vader, who they waited a couple movies to kind of show or allude that he had a good side to him. Kylo from the front was a conflicted character. So I'm not saying I like Kylo more than Darth Vader. I'm just saying in the sequel trilogy, <laughs> right. um, Kylo was definitely the one. And, you know, I grew an attached to, to him doing all those little Calvin and Hobbes cartoons oh, uh, yes. with, with him. So uh, he's, uh, I'm very grateful for that character.
0: Well, let's talk about little Kylo. He's, he seems to be very popular with everybody. I know he is for me. Uh, for those yeah. of you listening, um, Brian does a lot of a lot of Star Wars art, and uh, one that I've seen come up a lot is uh, this little Kylo, which a lot of you have probably seen before. Do you want to talk a little bit about um, him and all your you know Star Wars drawings?
1: Yeah. So, um, just like you, um, when I came out of Force Awakens, I I loved it. I was so energized. Uh, by the fact, cause there was a lot riding on it, you know, like, oh, can we go? Right. And I thought not only was it good, it was great. And like, really, like I was into it. And when Ray sleds down that hill, uh, on the dunes and, um, she, uh, is, is there, it reminded me, it flashed in my head, the image of Calvin, uh, and Hobbes riding in their red wagon. So when I got home from the movie, I'm like, oh, I got to draw something. And so I just drew that. I drew Ray and BB-8 in the style of Calvin and Hobbes sliding down this, uh, uh sand dune. And
0: again, right place, right time. It just started uh, uh, getting
1: shared and shared and liked and liked. And um, I noticed more and more correlation between uh, those comics and the movies. But it wasn't until I figured out, oh, Calvin's a really difficult child. You know, it must be hard to be his parents. And then I thought of Kylo Ren and like, oh, well, he's like the problem child of the galaxy.
0: <laughs>
1: and he's got two parents that everyone knows, Han and Leia. This, there might be something to that. So I started really basically redrawing uh, classic Calvin and Hobbes cartoons and just changing the characters. Uh, and keeping the dialogue exactly the same. And because people are so familiar with those strips, they got that on both levels. And um, there was one specifically that I had done, which wasn't based on an actual strip, but inspired by, and Kylo had massacred a bunch of um, snowmen on his front lawn. And Han just looks to Leia really dryly and says, you know, he gets this from your side of the family. <laughs> and that one, like, really took off. And I ended up getting 60,000 followers in one week. Wow. That's impressive. Yeah, after that image.
0: One of uh, my favorite of the little Kylo is he's talking to um, Boba Fett. Boba Fett has a little ice cream stand of oh, yeah. the Han Solo, and he's like, he's no good to me, melted. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. So then it became, thank you, th- then it became, like, just my uh, years and years of useless Star Wars knowledge and and quotes, and, like, oh, I could put my own twist on this. So it kind of, like, moved away from Calvin and Hobbes' scripts and just became, like, little one-panel comics of little Kylo Uh, having fun in the galaxy, in the galaxy of Star Wars.
0: They're so cute. Thanks. They're unbelievably adorable.
1: (laughs) It's fun when you play with proportions.
0: There was was some other ones of Star Wars that you did. Um, For those of you listening, Brian, uh, um, my boss had a a piece of art commissioned for me for one of my birthdays by Brian, and it was of Iron Man... Um, and Luke Skywalker navigating through the Death Star. And that one had something interesting to the way it was drawn. In addition, there's another one I think of with a similar style, and it was where Finn is behind a rock, and there's like a, um, what are they called, a Nar Oh, the Raftar? Raftar, yes, coming up from above him. And one thing I really love about those two in particular is the the layering that you have going on in there it there's like a a square or a rectangle of just space mm-hmm. and then the characters go outside of that that layer and you kind of mess with the positive and negative spaces yeah. of the frame creating this 3D image i think that goes into a little bit of your style too is that mm-hmm. intentional when when you draw it out
1: yeah definitely thank you i'm a big fan of like um, European comics, uh, French comics and, uh, comic art, I should say, not stand up. I mean, I'm sure they're funny too, but, uh, (laughs) French comic art. And they play a lot with the frame and, uh, this idea of, you know, really kind of drawing what's necessary and then uh, suggesting what's in the background, um, as opposed to doing a fully rendered drawing. Um, which, you know, can look beautiful, but sometimes take away from the main idea. Um, you know, uh, right now, the, what I'm working on as we speak is a commission for someone for a tattoo. And they, want, they wanted a uh, Princess Leia and Snoopy mashup. And they also mentioned that they really loved Up. And if I could get somehow something of Up uh, Into that piece, um, so what I ended up was having uh, little Leia hugging Snoopy, uh, and then Snoopy's got the little bandolier that Chewie wears uh, around him. Uh, but then I'm like, "Oh, up! What can I do with up? Well, up is a house with balloons. Snoopy has a dog house. Well, I'll put them on a dog house being lifted by a balloon. So, like, oh,
0: it's so cool.
1: That idea on itself doesn't need a background. Right. Yeah. Regardless if it was for a tattoo or not, um, it it just it's it's a clear graphic image, and really that's what drawing is is the arrangement of of shapes, and so um, it's kind of reducing it down to the most basic of levels so that the idea comes across.
0: Yeah. Well, you guys heard it here first—a little sneak peek of his latest commission. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's right. You do a lot, a lot, a lot of mashups. How did that start? Was it by commission or did you just start it on your own?
1: I just started doing it on my own because it's fun. There are little ideas that pop in my head that seem like, oh, this would be fun to draw. Uh, and so, and I think that's important is that I do it because it is fun for me. Um, and I think that that energy comes across in the piece. Whereas if I was doing it just for likes or just to get followers, it might not feel as genuine, Um, you know, because I really only play in the sandboxes that I know. I know Star Wars. I know Marvel. Um, You won't often see me doing a lot of DC mashups because I don't really know those characters um, and that sort of thing. So um, I think it comes down to just what I like to play with and people seem to enjoy that.
0: Is it difficult to adapt, say you got two characters from two different um, movies or TV shows, etc., and you want to bring them into one one story, is it difficult to adapt the different styles into one style?
1: know uh, because a lot of times they want it just in that Calvin and Hobbes style, or they want it in my style. So it's more just about unifying the characters. The hardest one I ever got was someone wanted a mashup of Dumbo and Batgirl and I, hard. <laughs> i'm like how am i going to connect those two but then i realized oh dumbo is holding that um black feather the black feather um you know makes him think he can fly so what if that black feather was actually a black batarang and oh, wow. uh, that girl was swinging through gotham uh and then you also have the circus element right, of uh, Dumbo Circus, but then also the Grayson's yeah. Circus. So um, I was able to make it work, but it took a little longer.
0: That's the uh, the circus that Robin is from, is that right? That's right, yeah. Okay. Robin's family, yeah. That's really cool. Have you seen any uh, or watched any uh, Star Wars of the animated series or movie? Yes,
1: yeah. I watched, um, not completely, but I watched... A lot of the Clone Wars, and I watched a lot of Rebels. I'm starting to watch Resistance now. Um,
0: I just but... finished uh, watching Resistance. It's oh yeah. I actually really loved it. It was so fun, and yeah, it's it's very very kiddy, But anyone listening just want more awesome Star Wars. It's amazing how it feels so Star Wars without having to rely on the Force or the Jedi yeah. or stuff like that. And the, yeah,
1: no, it's great. I, I'm really, I'm really enjoying it um, as well.
0: I'm not gonna spoil it for you, but the ending had me in tears. It was so sweet. Wow,
1: that's <laughs> cool. That's awesome.
0: And uh, the other one, have you seen any of Rebels?
1: Yes, I started watching Rebels. Uh, actually, I think I followed followed that one pretty closely, although I don't retain a lot of it. Um, but yeah, I liked Rebels a lot. I especially liked where it took
0: Ahsoka. Oh yes. Rebels is actually my favorite of the animated stuff. I just cool. I was cool. so attached to that one.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, before we, before we wrap up, I, I just want to know a little bit more about, um, your relationship with Lucasfilm and what, what you're doing in the future. And, um, I guess also you can talk a little bit about the relationship with Marvel too. Uh
1: huh. Yeah. Lucasfilm, it's been pretty amazing. Um, I've been doing illustrating a series of books for them, um, and uh, they they are like a throwback to the old 1980s droids cartoon. It's it's C3PO, R2D2, and BB8, and uh, they're like young readers. They're like Dr. Seuss books, but uh, Star Wars. And so those have been really fun to illustrate. I'm working with a great writer named Caitlin Kennedy, who is amazing and um so two of those books are out we're hoping to do a third but i think that's somewhat dependent on sales so if you all want to go out there and buy r2d2 is lost on amazon uh you will help uh the cause to get a third one made so i'll be my little plug uh is it it's on
0: kindle as well is that right
1: yes that's right um and uh it's really fun. They, uh, When the movies come out on home video, they'll usually have me do official little Kylo comics for them, which is really fun. So um, it's been a great partnership born out of fan art, which is pretty cool.
0: Now, you said you work with a, a writer, Caitlin Kennedy. Um, uh-huh. Do you incorporate any ideas to the story as well? Do you guys write together at all?
1: no it's very much a writer illustrator position on those books oh, okay. so um she writes the script and then i will illustrate it but it's kind of cool because she trusts me as i trust her with the story so she won't go into like too much detail about like how it should be laid out or drawn she, she tells the story and then i'm able to visually support that
0: oh that's a really nice relationship that's really good yeah um, any last minute thoughts on star Wars as far as where you see it going in the future in both television movies and, um, yeah. What do you think? Where do you think this uh, star Wars is going?
1: I think Mandalorian and Rogue one hit a sweet spot. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think the two of those properties are a great place for future filmmakers to play in. Um, I, I really enjoyed The Mandalorian. Um, you could tell it was a passion project, right? Yeah. And uh Rogue One I really enjoyed because it fleshed out the world and connected the movie could connected to the original uh trilogy. Um so um yeah, more of that please.
0: <laughs> I'm right there with you. I love The Mandalorian. It's it's yeah. It's going someplace really special. I can't wait yeah well awesome um that's it for uh today thank you so much for coming on and talking with us and talking about star wars uh before we say goodbye tell everyone where they can find you your social media anything else you want to you know promote out there or plug uh go ahead and let let everybody know yeah
1: thank you so um you can find me pretty much on any social media platform uh, and my accounts usually, uh, at Brian Kessinger. I'm most active on Instagram. So you'll find, uh, most up-to-date stuff there. Um, uh, and then I have a website and web store at Brian And that's Kessinger with one S. Um, and you will find, um, you know, uh, places, events that I'll be at, obviously not this year. Uh, and, uh, um, then uh, you'll see my store where you can get prints and books and uh, commissions.
0: Wow, that was absolutely incredible. That was the interview I did with Brian Kessinger, and it was uh, such such an honor, such a privilege. I'm very happy that we got the chance to do that, and hopefully we'll get to do it again sometime very soon. Uh, Thank you all again for tuning in and listening. If you're new to the channel, please make sure to subscribe or tune in or get notifications if you're on YouTube so you can get uh, an update next time we drop an episode. Next week, I'm joined by Zach Valadon, an old friend of mine where we're talking about what does it mean to be a Jedi. We'll also be celebrating the 40th year anniversary of The Empire Strikes Back. That's right. It's been around for 40 years. It's pretty crazy. But thank you guys again. And now, somehow, someway, somewhere this week, may the force be with you.